It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This episode, another in our series responding to COVID-19, was recorded on Monday the 13th of April 2020. I talked to Dougie Graham, governor of HMP Isle of Wight High Security Men's Prison, about the impact of the virus on the daily regime, the residents and the staff. My name's Dougie Graham. I'm the governor at HMP Isle of Wight. The prison is made up of uh, two prisons now. So you've got uh, um, Albany and Parkhurst. Both uh, hold uh, prisoners who are, generally speaking, high-risk sex offenders, although the Albany site also uh, manages uh, a small group of prisoners who are from the local Isle of Wight population. So it's a, it's, it's a large and kind of complex site um, split over two kind of what were two prisons in the past. Um, so how many prisoners do you have on each site? So there's approximately 500 on each site. So just we're, our current operational capacity is just a little over 1,000. OK, and the average age group, because I know you've got older men, haven't you? Yeah, so we do. We have about 40% who are over 50. Um, so probably the oldest that we've got, it will be in their early or mid-80s. Um, and there's only quite a few of those, so so less than 10. Um, but, uh, but we have a large group of older men. And I suppose from our point of view, the, the over 50s, from a medical point of view, we can kind of consider them as over 60s. Okay. Um, so we've got a large number of guys here who have quite complex medical needs as well. Okay, so when um, it sort of comes to the pandemic that we appear to be living through at the minute, um, I was just really keen to talk to you to get an idea of how a governor sort of prepares for something like this um, or, you know, what you're doing now, today and how things stand in your prison at the minute. Yeah, we started sort of planning or, or, or working through our contingencies um, quite a while ago, really, so back as far as uh, January. And the key thing for us, I think, locally is some of that partnership working with your local healthcare provider and making sure that, you know, what we're doing is in line with um, health advice. Um, so we started that quite a while ago and so got a good, well-established relationship with them. Um, I, th- I suppose for us, things changed quite dramatically um, from just 
kind of encouraging people to maintain good standards of hygiene, etc., and and come into the prison and, and wash their hands regularly, to delivering a much more restricted regime. So that was a big shift, and and with not a huge amount of notice. Um, so we had to move pretty quickly from that. But because we kind of had already got a reasonable idea of what we were doing, we put in place what I'm calling a kind of five-layered strategy. So the first thing is to try and prevent COVID-19 coming into the prison. So that relies mainly on the staff doing their bit in terms of uh, hand hygiene as they come into the prison. But also if we get any new prisoners, and we don't get many, but if we do get any new prisoners, they go into 14 days quarantine effectively. Right, so you're still getting some new prisoners onto the island into the prisons? Not from other prisons, but we are getting some uh, occasionally in from uh, the magistrate's court. Okay. Um, So in the last couple of weeks, I think we've had four new prisoners come in so a couple of them are still in the quarantine um two of them i think by now have 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 left the quarantine okay so that's that's kind of phase one or, or or layer one is to try and keep it from getting into the prison and then we've broken each of the wings up and obviously what we're trying to do there is to put staff to work in particular areas and minimise the amount of cross-deployment. So we try not to transfer prisoners within the wings. So that's the kind of next layer. So you're kind of... And also giving facilities for staff if they do need to move between different areas to to practice good hand sanitisation. And then within the wings themselves, we've broken those up into four groups. Um, So those groups go and exercise together. They go where necessary to shower obviously not as a group but but they they shower at the same time together in different areas um and again you're trying to make sure that those groups don't come into contact with each other as much as possible right and they seem to be sort of understanding that do they and they kind of know what's going on out there in the big big wide world yeah, so I think there's a really good understanding of how this is impacting on the country. And actually this morning when I was walking around, you know, I was having a chat with a guy and, and, and we were just both reflecting that for his family and my family, this is quite a big change. But actually for him and I, you know, I'm still turning up to work as normal as, or, you know, the vast bulk of all of my staff. And actually for him, he's still doing his job within the prison. So that's mm-hmm. not to say there isn't an impact in terms of the regime. But I think we are probably observing that, that there's a, at the moment a greater impact on our families in the community. And it doesn't matter whether you're a member of staff or, or whether you're a prisoner. Yeah, exactly. Because I imagine your family are probably quite worried about you being in the prison all day long. Yeah. Just, you know, along with the officers. I think that for staff families, it's it's that we're in a really interesting dynamic at the moment. Because we've been in lockdown for a period of time and and at HMPL of White, we haven't had any um, confirmed cases amongst staff or confirmed cases amongst um, prisoners. So, in a sense you know as as much as we can be without being complacent we don't we don't think we've got it in the prison that said we're acutely aware that the people that will bring it into the prison will probably be staff because i don't think there's you know we've we've sort of putting other people in quarantine so i don't i think we're likely to be the ones bringing it in but of course once or if it gets into the prison the only way it's going to get back to my home is by me or, or, you know, taking it home. And, of course, that's the same for all of our staff. 
So when you kind of think about it, I mean, we are all absolutely relying on each other and and working through this together because actually the people that that are at risk, it doesn't matter whether you're a uniform or not in uniform, and the people that put your family at risk are staff coming to work. So it's an interesting dynamic for us to kind of all think through. But And I think that is why overall you're seeing um, a really good understanding both by staff who I think are being amazing um, and are working really hard and really sensibly in what are always challenging conditions, but particularly challenging now. And actually prisoners who are responding, you know, the absolute vast majority are responding brilliantly to this as well and being really helpful and supportive. Have you been quite surprised by that? Because I certainly thought that as soon as visits started shutting down and, you know, people being kept in their cells for long periods of time. I mean, I know that sort of, you know, the regimes have been a bit more restricted because of all the cuts that have gone on over the years. Mm. But I certainly thought it wouldn't be long before things got really quite hairy. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to be the case, or maybe it is the case in some places. I'm sure there's variety uh, around the country, you know, for myself and for, for the prisons here. What we experienced, I, I think that the amount of uh, lead into this, I suppose, so the fact that people were seeing it in the news a lot before it got to the UK and then have seen it being reported a lot as it has spread. And also, so there's a really good awareness amongst everybody about the seriousness of the of the nature of what we're, what we're battling against. And, and then you've got... I mean, I'm very fortunate here so that the, all the prisoners have phones in their cell so they can all phone their families. And we've lifted some of the restrictions, not, not the restrictions in terms of protecting the public, but just the restrictions in terms of the time that people can go on the phone for. So they are being kept well informed by their families about what conditions are like in our communities and how much that's impacting on them. So I think that that over that lead in time, that understanding, that communication with families, and understanding what families are going on, are all contributing to people's understanding and tolerance of the changing conditions. And and I think for us, you talked about visits. It's really interesting for for us in the lead up um, to the lockdown being imposed. We were obviously still operating visits and encouraging people to practice social distancing and. Um, hand hygiene, but we were still operating them. And some prisoners were, were asking us not to and actually saying, you know, we're, we're concerned about that will be one of the ways in which it will get in. So I think there is an understanding for people that, that in order to protect everybody, you have to restrict things. But within that, you know, we're trying to obviously deliver in a consistent way or, or as consistently as possible. And at the moment, we're able to do that because our staffing levels are holding up you know, people are coming to work. So you haven't got too many staff off? Um, I've probably got less staff off than I might normally expect for non-COVID-related symptoms. And then I've probably, you know, I've, I've, I've probably got less than 10 who are off currently um, with COVID symptoms. So okay. in an in impact of, of my staff group, we're not particularly feeling it at the moment because partly in order to run the more race restricted regimes, we actually don't need as many staff to do that. So we've got plenty to run the regimes at the moment. I think what we also know, and there is a sort of noting of caution that I have for, for 
you know, my staff when I'm talking to them about this is that I think things can change very quickly. And yeah. so you only need to have a couple of cases and then that will have, have an impact on your staffing. And then you might find that your restricted regime becomes more restricted than it currently is. Right. So you're sort of slightly preparing for that. And if anything's keeping you up at night, it's that, is it? Because also at some point, you know, the, the lockdown will have to ease. And then when the prisoners start transferring between prisons again, yeah, you know, it's still a risk, isn't it? I think, I mean, the risk, it feels to me, not, not being a scientist, but it feels to me like the risk will be ongoing for quite some time. Yeah. And I suppose in terms of things that keep me up at night, the risks once it gets into the prison um, with an older population um, and also to your staff, I think, is obviously, you know, a, a primary concern. That's the thing that really worries me. Um, PPE, the availability of sort of personal protective equipment. I mean, actually, at the moment, that's that's not a bad news story for us. So we are in a pretty good position. And so, but I also know that part of the reason we're in a good position is because we've only had one or two suspected cases and no confirmed cases. So the amount of PPE that we're actually having to use is really small and, and not really much different from what we would normally be using. So we've got a reasonable stock, but my f- absolute fear would be to be in a situation where we're having to manage a large number of people who have COVID-19 and then not have that kit. So there does seem to be, you know, that does seem to be operating better. So the availability of that does seem to be improving. Uh, we had a further delivery just before um, the weekend. So I, at the moment, I feel reasonably confident about it. But it is the kind of worst, that's the worst thing to kind of be in a situation where you might be having to ask people to operate in an environment where they don't have the kit to do it. And that's pretty much the, the worst kind of place that I can think of me being in other than obviously um, the risk to life that, that we're all facing anyway, whether you're in prison or in the community. Yeah. And then also sort of when it comes to sort of you, the governor, I know you'll have sort of deputy governors and sort of different governor grades all over the place, but having seen Boris Johnson suddenly disappear off into hospital, and it's like this thing that no one believes that it could possibly happen to them until it literally happens to them. Mm. So I'm sure you do have a plan in place if you got ill with it yourself. Yeah, so we are in effect in a command mode situation. So that that means that we've we've gone from sort of just operating normally that 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 we have command teams in place for lots of different um, elements. And actually, that has evolved over time. So at one point, we had a team who were exclusively looking at entry and exit from the prison and how we do that safely and and with good hygiene. Because of various things they've put in place, we don't really need a team looking at that all the time. But in terms of sort of the backup plan for me, um, you know, you've got the deputy governor who's more than capable of of, of running things in my absence. And then I've got a group of uh, um, operational managers and other senior non-operational people who I've got a huge amount of confidence in in terms of you know, their ability to make the right decisions and deal with things. Um, I rely on them you know, day in, day out, year in, year out to, to make sensible decisions without referring um, kind of everything to the governor. So those teams are in place and have already been doing absolutely fantastic work. 
And so I think we're, we would be in a good position if I was not... And it, it might not be me coming getting ill. I mean, if it was one of my kids, then obviously I have to stay at home potentially for 14 days. So, exactly. Um, so we've, we have to have robust systems in place to make sure that, that everything keeps on going even when, um, you know, when I'm not around or other people aren't around. And we've, and we've had quite a lot of our operational managers not being here. So we've had some who've been unable to get back from holidays for a period of time and a number who've had relatives who've been um, ill. So they've been away for a couple of weeks and some who've been unwell themselves. So we've had the full range of that and that's, that's depleted the number of operational managers at times. But again, you know, they've been brilliant and worked well together as a team to, to make sure that they're out there trying to support staff who again are at the coalface and uh, and are doing an absolutely amazing job i mean i was i've been out on the ground quite a lot over the over the weekend and uh, what you're seeing is extraordinary i mean i i mean not that surprising because i think prison staff pull together in the most extraordinary way in the face of adversity um, but you're re- seeing it in practice and every wing you go to people trying to do their bit trying to encourage prisoners to maintain social distancing running the regime which is which is busy because there's a lot of unlocking and locking up to do and keeping people apart from each other and they're just they're just getting on with it with kind of real humor courage um all the things that you would expect them to do but it is fantastic to see it in action Mm, and it does sort of feel like they're the hidden heroes doesn't it sort of behind the walls and you know it's a public service paid for by the public sort of for the public yet the public knows so little about them really because you know they as I say they are behind the walls and you sort of think of policemen and firemen and you know obviously the sort of clap for the NHS on Thursdays and you know I always sort of think it's it's a shame really because you know people can often say say well people are in prison because they've committed a crime and it shouldn't be a holiday camp and it's almost like they forget it's actually a place of employment yeah you know and these people are doing such an incredible job I think that, um, I mean, obviously, at this time, there are all kinds of people who we need. You know, the NHS are absolutely in the forefront of this, and yeah, it, there are extraordinary stories that you see every day of the of the, the courage that they will be displaying and uh, and will go on to do for for you know the months to come. And and the, it's just that those other agencies are just more visible. And I think it is. A, I do think it is a shame. But um, I think prison staff should be enormously proud of the role that they perform in protecting you know, society and protecting the public. Um, it's a difficult thing sometimes to, you know, care for others in 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 these conditions. Um, when you're worried about your families and you're worried about the impact on them and the risks that you're not only necessarily putting yourself under but your families and that will be shared by lots of other public sector workers as well the shame is that i suppose people don't understand what happens within prisons and really understand the courage and the bravery and the commitment that prison staff have um, to their role and and why it's such an important role for our society but that doesn't mean they should feel any less proud about what they're doing and and what they're achieving at the moment because I do think you know both locally for me but what I'm hearing around the rest of the country as well they're doing an extraordinary job. Yeah absolutely and on a practical level I was just sort of wondering about um, when a man needs to come out of your prison to go to hospital you know 
they have to be handcuffed usually to a prison officer. Yes. And if a prison officer needs to do a bed watch but is over the age of 64 because the retirement age is 68, well, that means they're in the vulnerable category and shouldn't be in a hospital. So how are you getting around some of those difficulties? Yeah, so when we're, when we're escorting people and actually in a number of security tasks, you can't undertake those tasks at two metres distance. So... So in those circumstances, we're issuing staff PPE, so they will wear masks, gloves and aprons, etc. And we also, so where possible, based on the kind of risk assessment, if we can use uh, an escort chain, which is a long chain, that allows us to, to be still handcuffed to the person, but at a greater distance. So... I'm not suggesting for one second you can maintain the full two metre social distancing during the whole of the length of an escort when you're transporting somebody. But you can do as as good a job as you can within the practical limits. So those types of things um, we have in place. And in terms of staff, clearly what we've, we've put in place fairly early on, some welfare mechanisms because although a lot of our staff are fit and probably most of them are fitter than the average member of the public um, there are a number who will have underlying medical conditions and so whether it's an age-related issue or whether it's um, because of a medical condition inevitably some of the staff are um, in self-isolation and that's in you know, that's entirely right and proper and I'm completely supportive of that and some are trying to do some work from home. Um, but they need to be there to protect themselves, protect their families and protect the NHS. So I think there's a great deal of understanding amongst myself, managers and the staff group that um, some people have just got to not be here. And others, we're taking sort of what I would call more calculated risks. So... I have some people who've who've said, look, I've got this condition, but I want to keep on working. So we're sort of saying, well, okay, but you've then you've got to really socially distance or you've got to work by yourself in a particular area, or we would avoid deploying those people to any areas where we've got confirmed cases, for example. So there's a right. number of different ways in which we approach all of those issues. And it's just a it, it's it's about making kind of taking a risk assessed approach and, and just making sensible judgments involving the people who those judgments are around and when it comes to hand washing because you know having been in a few prisons myself um it can be quite challenging i imagine to try and wash your hands all the time when sometimes well quite often there's not a basin around yeah so there are a number of things we've done so so when you come into the establishment we have a particular route that you come in by and we have um built and put installed um, sinks in those areas so that staff, before they collect their keys, uh, can wash their hands. So that's the sort of first bit. Then across all the wings, um, most actually wings do have staff facilities. So they there are areas where they can wash their hands. But also we've put in place um, hand sanitizers on the wings as well. Um, so those are particularly kind of outside the, the wing. So as staff come onto the wing, um, they can clean their hands. And we've also issued stuff out to people. And I'm in the process of getting more individual um, hand sanitizers um, so that we can hand those out to staff as well. So, you, you know, it, again, it's not 
all of it's not all, uh, always ideal. I mean, it's not a perfect solution. But I think working together, people are being sensible and trying to do the best they can in what are often imperfect circumstances. And we're trying to do our bit by trying to improve the facilities and opportunities. And some of the flexibility that we've built into the regime is there to give staff greater opportunity to practice good um, hand hygiene. Right. Yeah, because I was wondering about the regime. And I mean, is it fully on sort of 24 hour lockdown? Or what what can the men, I know they come out to shower, and they probably come out to exercise. But is there any education or anything sort of going on? And how how are they keeping themselves entertained, really? Yeah, so the the regime is pretty basic. So um, it's sort of in our priority order, it goes medication, um, then then meals, then exercise. We don't have this issue with phone calls because they've all got telephones in their cells so they can get access to families really um, easily. That's what you're trying to deliver and obviously showers as well. So that's, that is a pretty limited regime. We do have some people working. So we have uh, the, a DHL workshop that provides canteen um, for... Uh, us, but also for a number of other prisons. So it's important that keeps on running. Things like laundry and waste management, we need those to run, as well as cleaning on the wings, which needs to happen regularly. So so when we're moving those groups of prisoners around, we're asking our cleaners to go and clean behind them and in front of them, as, as, if you see what I mean. Yeah. There is a certain amount of activity from that point of view. But in terms of education and also just the wider workshops of course all of those um, have been closed we have produced quite a lot of what we're calling distraction packs so i think we've produced more than eight thousand within a week Um, and they cover a huge range of things because obviously different people have got different interests and and different capabilities so there's no point in giving everybody sudoku you know some people will be more interested in drawing and and more artistic um, endeavors and but obviously others will like crosswords and sudoku and and that type of thing so there's a there's a range of different activities we're running little competitions so we produce a a newsletter that, that goes out probably about once every three or four days um, so that has competitions in it as well as information. And uh, we picked up from one of the, the other prisons um, an idea where on our newsletter we have a, a form uh, which which we locally here have called fish forms, which are um, about feedback, uh, ideas, support and help. So uh, these fish forms, we get prisoners send us those from the wings and they come back directly to the command suite. So it just gives us another way of finding out what's going on and what's important um, and, and make, if we can, adjustments to the regime or the facilities that we're offering. And it, and that's we've already done that, so we changed some of how we were running the exercise on one of the sites. Um, we're looking at changing some of the TV channels that we're, are on offer um, to make them sort of better for people who are watching TV throughout the day rather than just in the evening. Um, so there's a, the, that form of communication, and I think probably earlier when I was sort of talking, about, it was one of the big things that I missed out was the importance of communication in, in the circumstances and being honest with people, um, so that they feel quite, that they're getting the truth, and therefore there's no point in these circumstances sugarcoating things. You don't need to give people a, a worst case scenario. 
but you certainly need to be realistic about how long we might be doing for this for and how this could get a lot more challenging and how yeah. the risks could go up considerably for staff and for prisoners. Um, and we need to be honest about that. And the, hopefully by a bit of honesty, that also encourages people you know, to follow the advice, which is really important. Exactly. And um, out of interest, you sort of being governor and all the other governors around the country of all the different prisons, um, who then supports you guys? I mean, other than, of course, your families, but do you get support from the Ministry of Justice or, I don't know, do you lean on each other or is it the Prison Governors Association or...? So I think probably the main the main support, I mean, for me, certainly, my main support has always been uh, my family and... Um, I think uh, for a lot of staff, that's the case as well. I think, you know, they families do so much and have to have to deal with so much in terms of us coming to work on a normal day and some of the risks, particularly that, that frontline prison officers face. Um, so I think families are an enormously important part of what allows us all to keep functioning. But equally, um, we have regular dial-ins with, with my managers, um, so that's happening on a daily basis. And also, I think, other governors, so we're, we're in a part of the prison estate called the Long-Term and High-Security Estate. Um, obviously, we don't meet up anymore, but we do phone each other and support each other on an individual basis, but also as a group, we try and um, do a, a call in together uh, a couple of times a week just to check in and see how people are doing. I think we know that some of our prisons have already had some quite challenging times, um, unfortunately not for a long period, but during during this, you know, had some difficult periods where they've lost a lot of staff, but for various reasons. Um, so I think it's really important that we try and support each other. And I suppose the, there's a little bit of an argument that the the people who most understand the um, the challenges of the of of what you're going through as a governor at the moment is is probably other governors. So it's nice to be able to have yeah. a bit of a chat with your with your colleagues. But I have to say, I've been I have been really humbled by my own staff. Um, I mean, literally just before I came up to my office to talk to you, one guy came up to me to ask me how I was doing, and uh, I think that's I think oh. that's about the third or fourth time today somebody's asked me how I do. So <laughs> really, and how how often normally would people ask you how you're doing? Probably not very often. It's a pretty new experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> And and again, I just think that sort of shows the kind of calibre of the people that I'm working with because, you know, they've all got their own issues and their own worries and uh, and they're much closer to the front line than I am. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty humbling to see that they've still got kind of room in their thoughts um, uh, for me. So I'm very grateful for that. So, so and I think, I suppose that comes back, you know, it, we're all in it together, aren't we? Exactly. And uh, and I'm going to do my best for them, and and I know they are already doing their best for me. So uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, great. Well, here's to the hidden heroes, and um, I'm going to let you get back to the wings. You've got more important things to be doing on Easter Monday than uh, talking to me. So good luck with it all. I really hope it sort of carries on remaining as calm as it sounds over there on the Isle of Wight. So uh, fingers crossed and good luck. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. 
Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.